0: Please rise for the reading of God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and the deal with your servants according to what you see." So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Adam, for reading that lengthy passage, also full of lots of names. It's a, a dirty thing to do to someone who's pretty new to the church, so thank you for <laughs> thanks for signing on for reading that passage for us. I uh, invite you to keep your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 1 uh, as we pray together and begin our time there. God, we ask... That as we begin a journey through this book of Scripture this morning, that you would use it in such a way that we know you more deeply and trust you more completely than we did before we read it together. We pray that our hope in the gospel would be assured and that our confidence in you and your love for us would be our place of rest. We ask these things, Lord, as we open these words together, and we do so in the name of your Son. Amen. There was a time in my life when I thought that I would really love the sort of job that would require a lot of travel. Some of you in this room have jobs like that. I dreamt about going all over the world and constantly seeing new places and being such a jet setter that I would earn a special status with the airlines, I have a friend who has the sort of job that requires him to travel all over the world for the company that he works for, and every time he tells me a story about getting bumped up to first class or spending a month in Singapore or London, I think that sounds pretty cool. But as I've gotten older, I've learned that I don't think I'm cut out for that type of thing. Because as it turns out, travel has been a factor in my career, though not enough to ever have been bumped into first class. But it has taken me to lots of interesting places that I'm glad I had the chance to see. But something I've noticed is that pretty much as soon as I leave home, I find myself looking at my watch, wondering how long it will be before I get to go back. So the idea of being on the road for most of the year is something I don't think I would handle very well at all. Homesickness is something I think we've all felt from time to time. Being a long way from the people that we love or the routines that bring us comfort or even the familiarity of our own comfy bed can be discouraging, It can wear us down. There are all kinds of reasons that people might feel homesickness, many of them more serious than anything I've ever faced. When a soldier is deployed to a combat zone, the homesickness he might feel is of a deeper and more consequential nature. But his duty demands strength and discipline and courage regardless of the life that he longs to return to. It's that sort of character that we consider as we begin a new study this morning. Daniel tells the story of a few Jewish teenagers who were taken from their homes in Jerusalem to a distant land where they would spend decades waiting to go back. But rather than wallowing in homesickness there and despair over their circumstances, we see them rise to the occasion and live with courage and conviction. Their example is both inspiring and helpful to us because of the ways that God reveals His own faithfulness to His people, not just in captivity in ancient Babylon, but throughout history. So this fall at Westgate, we will be studying through the book of Daniel together. It's unique among the books of the Bible, For a couple of reasons, one to do with its structure and another to do with its language. It's divided into two main sections, six chapters of history and six chapters of prophetic visions about the future. And it's written in two ancient languages. The beginning and end are in Hebrew, like the rest of the Old Testament, But a big chunk in the middle is actually written in Aramaic, which was a more widely used language in the ancient Near East, so it seems designed, at least in part, for a diverse audience. It was designed to be shared, to proclaim beyond Judah that God vindicates His people, that those people are to seek the well-being and blessing of the people around them wherever they are, and that those people are able to thrive even though they live in a fallen world because God is faithful and sovereign and supremely good. And they know that even in the wild and untamed future, which half of this book is focused on, God is still firmly in control. Daniel is a hero of faith because he knew these things to be true. He stood confidently confidently on the rock of God's unshakable faithfulness as things went from bad to much, much worse in the world around him. And he was able not only to endure it all, but to do so with confidence and grace. And that is our aim in studying this book together. That we would recognize the ways that God reveals himself to be both sovereign and good. That our lives would be changed as a result of having seen it. And that even as we live in challenging and uncertain circumstances of our own, we too would live with confidence and grace. Daniel wants everyone who reads this story to know these things about God. And so he opens the book by telling us exactly when these things happened because he wants us to know that this is no myth or legend, but a historical account of things that really took place. It's an important detail because, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, there are some wild things in store for us in this book. So he begins by saying that in the third year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It was a dark time for God's people, the darkest time. Babylon had been a looming shadow on the horizon for years, and finally the day had come when the threat that they feared had become a reality at their doorstep. The northern part of the kingdom had already fallen about a century and a half earlier when the Assyrians had come and burned everything to the ground. And now there is a new ravenous empire next door. Babylon has toppled Assyria and marched to Judah. And with swift efficiency, Babylonian forces have overwhelmed Jerusalem, and they capture many artifacts and people, shipping them back to their cities. Specifically, we read that some of the vessels of the house of God were collected and taken to a place called Shinar. Now, Shinar may sound familiar to you because it was the site of an important event in the biblical narrative in Genesis 11 when the people built the Tower of Babel there. They gathered together at Shinar, and in prideful arrogance, they sought to gain mastery over their gods, and the centerpiece of their plan was this tower. Afterward, they were humbled by Yahweh who scattered them across the earth. So Shinar was left as a memorial to the foolish pride of humanity. And by mentioning it here, Daniel is foreshadowing the way that Babylon will make the very same mistake and the way that God will answer it. It has already begun, here in chapter 1, with the theft of temple hardware, which is then put in Nebuchadnezzar's pagan temples. It's the same prideful arrogance that we saw back in Genesis 11, the same desire to master the divine. But it is not just treasures from the temple that are seized. Babylonian forces also carry away some of the people from Jerusalem. In the first wave of the exile that will eventually carry away hundreds of thousands of jewish people to babylon it begins here with people from among the nobility and without blemish we read who were captured and shipped away it was a specific strategy intended to engineer influential defenders of babylonian rule among subjected people nebuchadnezzar and the other leaders in babylon have designed this program to bring these youths from Jerusalem to erase their past and give them new identities so that they will become effective advocates for Babylonian rule among their own people. So, they're trained in Babylonian language and literature, to be given food from the king's own table, and were even given new Babylonian names. Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all left Jerusalem with names that proclaimed aspects of God's character. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. Hananiah's name meant God is gracious. Mishael's name meant who is like God, and Azariah's name meant Yahweh is a helper. Changing their names signified more than the fact that the Babylonians had a hard time pronouncing these Hebrew words, because their new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have meanings of their own. Each of them refers to Babylonian gods and their attributes. Daniel and the others accept their new names without arguing, which must have been a pretty humbling experience to be named after the gods of the people who have conquered your nation. But they will only go so far. They accept new names. Their Babylonian captors can call them whatever they want. Though the text seems to indicate, as we read on, that among themselves they maintained their Hebrew names, but we read in verse 8 that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. The word resolved in verse 8 is a sort of a simplified translation of a Hebrew phrase that means that he determined this thing in his heart. It's clear that he is intensely opposed to this food. He has resolved at the very core of his being that he will not eat it Having a two-year-old in a house, uh, this is a protest that I'm familiar with. (laughs) But Daniel is not just a picky eater. Some people think that Daniel is perhaps uh, avoiding unclean foods that were prohibited by Jewish law. Based on the way that he's going to act throughout the rest of the book, I think there's a good chance that he and his friends are careful about that, about the things that they eat and maintaining the Jewish law to the extent that they were able to do so in Babylon. But we read in verse 13 that they request to eat only vegetables and to drink only water. And this request goes considerably beyond the restriction of Jewish food laws, so it doesn't seem like that that was his main concern here. Others think that Daniel is concerned that some of the food that they are given has been sacrificed to idols or that it has been prepared in some forbidden way. But there's no mention of that in the passage. And if that were Daniel's concern makes sense that he probably would have been concerned about all the food in Babylon, including the vegetables. All the text tells us is that Daniel would have been defiled with the king's food. So they're willing to accept names that honor false gods, but, verse 8 says, the king's food would cross a line. What is going on here? Daniel and his friends are navigating the complicated path that all of God's people must walk while living in a fallen world. Most scholars think that this, the, the, the concern over this food here comes down to the fact that Daniel and his friends refuse to identify as Babylonians, even if they accept being called by new Babylonian names. To eat the king's food would, would be to see him as provider, to acknowledge their dependence on him, Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as a god, and there is something about eating food from his table that endorses his claim. And that is evidently why Daniel felt so strongly about this, though his behavior in this passage doesn't make that immediately obvious. He is passionate about this line that he is simply not willing to cross, but he does not stamp his foot and whine about it, he doesn't march off to tell the cook that he's serving depraved food. He doesn't throw a tantrum for being served something he didn't want to eat, which is a preferred strategy for someone in my household. He just goes to his overseer and asks permission for different food. Already, on page one of this book, we see that Daniel is cool under pressure. And the pressure is real here because the overseer that Daniel talks to is nervous that if things don't go well here, he will end up before the Babylonian executioner. So, the stakes are very high. Daniel's life is in danger here. Babylon is a violent place, and Nebuchadnezzar was not the sort of person you wanted mad at you. So, Daniel's courage is amazing here, and I think that's highlighted by the fact that he is just a kid. We read at the end of the passage that he was in Babylon until the reign of Cyrus, which is about seven decades. It probably means he was about 14 or 15 when he was taken from his homeland. From Babylon's perspective, that was a calculated part of the strategy because they assumed that 14-year-olds would be easier to control. But Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah aren't so easy to manipulate, even though they're just kids and they are a long way from home. They are captives of the most powerful man on earth. They stand their ground not only with conviction, but with grace. And as we'll see often in this book, they do so not because of their confidence in their own strength, but in the strength of the God who they know has not abandoned them to Babylon. They come up with a plan to test this vegetarian diet plan against the king's menu for 10 days. Afterward, amazingly, Daniel and his friends look fatter in flesh, which was a compliment back then. The overseers are dumbfounded when they see that these guys have actually bulked up eating only cucumbers and celery rather than the high-calorie food from the king's table. It's a result that is only explainable by God's intervention, which is something that Daniel was counting on. So far, the plan to maintain their identity is a success. But then three years go by, Three years of political propaganda where Daniel and his friends learned the language, the literature, and the beliefs and the customs of their new home. Considering that they were teenagers when they when they arrived, they've been immersed in Babylonian culture for a good portion of their lives at this point. And that Babylonian culture was probably quite the spectacle to behold. Archaeological records indicate that this was a culturally rich period of ancient Near Eastern history, full of mathematical and architectural and literary and social advances. For Daniel and the others who had been taken with him, this was like stepping into a different world, into a city that reaches beyond the horizon with buildings taller than anything that they've ever seen in their lives and marvels that they would have never imagined before they got there putting ourselves into their shoes, I think it would be hard not to be overwhelmed by the magnificence of it all. Like getting transported from a small town in the woods where you spend your whole life to the middle of New York City. And ancient Babylon was home to an incredibly well-funded and advanced university where Daniel and his friends are given their education empires, for all the violence and destruction that they leave in their wake, also centralize resources and provide for scientific research, the arts, and trade, as long as all of those fields are loyal to the crown and benefit, benefit his rule. So Daniel and the others who are with him learn from the very best, and they had to acknowledge at some point the sheer brilliance of their instructors. And all of this is designed very purposefully to convince them that Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely sovereign, that his reign will never end, and that the future is decidedly Babylonian. Evidently, it was an effective program for other unnamed young men who were captured alongside Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah because only those four will make their stand throughout this book for the God that they know to be supreme over everything, even Babylon itself. But that doesn't mean that they did not benefit from the classes that they took, at the end of the chapter, we see that they are a cut above the rest. In fact, the king declares them to be ten times better than his other servants, the magicians and the enchanters who advise him. Daniel and his friends prove themselves to be gifted and wise servants of Nebuchadnezzar, which is an interesting turn of events. Just a paragraph ago, they were refusing his food, evidently because they didn't want to acknowledge his claim of divine authority, and now they are serving him as his advisors. It's a strange juxtaposition that this book will explore more as we study through it. That God's people are to live in the world but remain apart from it somehow, to serve it but not worship it, to care for it but not idolize it, and to seek its good without compromising our identity in the process. Because Daniel and his friends have something in common with us. Well, they lived in exile we recognize that we share some of their experience, that we are exiles too. Strangers in a strange land who live here now but have citizenship in another city and one that we long for. Beginning here and throughout the rest of the book, we'll see Daniel and others who are with him hold all these things in tension because serving and honoring God in a fallen world is a complicated thing. We often talk about it like it's very black and white, though like there is always a very clear right path and a clear wrong path. And that's true with some things in life, like if you're trying to decide whether or not to take up a career as a burglar or an identity thief. But most of life is not so black and white. Most of life is shades of gray where the right path is hard to identify and the way to actually honor God is not immediately clear. Where it's hard to say where we should draw the line that we refuse to cross. What's interesting to me in this chapter is what Daniel does not protest. He was willing to accept a new name that honored an idol, a false god of Babylon, but he drew the line at eating the king's food. He benefited from some of the finest education in the world, even though it was purposefully designed to break his faith and make him loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. Then he dutifully serves Nebuchadnezzar. Though as we'll see throughout the rest of the book, he does not compromise his loyalty to Yahweh in the process. The only thing that's actually clear here is that living in exile is complicated. The right decision is not always a matter of black and white. Knowing where to draw the line that we will not cross is not always immediately obvious. But for every generation since the 6th century BC, people have looked to the book of Daniel as a model of faithfulness to God while living in circumstances that are challenging to them. In fact, that's the reason that we've decided to spend this fall studying through this book. Like Daniel and his friends, we find ourselves surrounded by a culture that confronts our faith on an almost daily basis and seems to do so more urgently with each passing year. There is pressure to conform, to abandon beliefs that are considered outdated, to adopt the values that society around us holds today, only to abandon those values tomorrow in favor of something else. Just like Daniel, we face decisions about how to navigate life in our culture, knowing that there are some things that are clearly across the line that are not acceptable, but not always knowing, but not always knowing exactly where that line should be drawn. And amid that uncertainty, there is great temptation to move toward the things that our culture values the most. Many of you, I'm sure, know the sort of pressure to conform better than I do. I have the luxury of getting to come to work here at Westgate every day, so the pressure that I feel is to be more faithful to the teaching of Scripture, which is a good thing, something I'm grateful for. I'm not exactly dealing with the same things that many of you do when you go to work or school, Though, of course, it's not exactly the same as Daniel's situation, and we should be careful to remember that. Daniel was forcibly taken from his home, threatened with violence, and subjected to an education program that he didn't have any option of avoiding. He didn't have the choice to move to a different town, to transfer schools, or to change jobs. And he lived with the memory of the siege of Jerusalem. When he looked out over the city walls and saw a numberless ocean of Babylonian soldiers and war machines... He remembers the march to Babylon, a journey of about a thousand miles, a trip that would have taken him months and years, perhaps, during which he would have seen the results of resistance to Babylonian rule. He would remember scorched land and flattened cities. In our neighborhoods and workplaces, we see people lose career opportunities, perhaps, friendships, maybe reputation, not their lives. So these situations are not the same. We should not compare ourselves to Daniel or to others throughout history or elsewhere in the world today who have been persecuted and put in the sort of danger that he was. But we can still learn from this book about what this book teaches us about how to navigate the challenges that come with living in a fallen world and desiring to be faithful and obedient to God in a world that does not desire likewise. The book is written in a way that is useful and instructive for God's people at all times because its goal, first and foremost, is to reveal things that are true about God himself. And that is what makes the difference for Daniel and for his friends and for us. Because it's not as though Daniel is categorically different from us. He is just like us. Actually, he's a kid, younger than almost everyone in this room. Yet he stood with courage in the face of the mightiest human force the world had ever seen because he trusted that God is both sovereign and faithful, and that is what made the difference. God is sovereign, and Daniel knows it, and therefore he is able to thrive in Babylon. It's a theme that we will see repeated throughout this book, and we see it here in this chapter in the repetition of a phrase that is easy to miss. In verse 2, when the Babylonians are laying siege to Jerusalem, we read that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hands of the Babylonians. In verse 9, when Daniel has resolved not to defile himself with the king's food, we read that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of his overseer. And in verse 17, we read that God gave Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah learning and skill and literature and all wisdom. In every case, all these appearances would indicate that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's in control. He is the one who brings a vast army to Jerusalem's gate, and he appears sovereign when he does so. He loots the temple there and demonstrates his power. He instructs his servants to feed his captured servants and to fear his anger. He sends Daniel and the others to school to be trained under his supervision and for his benefit. At every turn, it appears that Daniel is subject to Nebuchadnezzar's rule, but in truth, it is God who is at work here. He makes the heart of the overseer compassionate toward Daniel. He causes Daniel and the others to grow in wisdom and understanding, and it was God who gave Jerusalem and its people into the hands of Babylon in the first place. It is exactly what He said He would do. Beginning way back in Deuteronomy and throughout the Old Testament, God warned His people that their persistent disobedience and wickedness would lead to the day that he would raise up an instrument of his discipline, a nation who would conquer them and take the people into exile. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet calling people to repentance and repeating this warning that the exile would one day come. The prophet Jeremiah, who lived in Jerusalem before and during the time when Nebuchadnezzar showed up, spent his whole life warning people that the day would shortly come when God's answer to their sinfulness would finally arrive. He condemned lying prophets who told people that everything was fine, and he told everyone in the city that God had appointed Babylon and its king, Nebuchadnezzar, and his servants to be the instrument of his discipline, and that Judah would be exiled for 70 years. Jeremiah is specific about these things. So though it was Nebuchadnezzar who came knocking and his armies who put Daniel in chains, God was the one carrying out his will here. And knowing that changes everything for Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. It is what gives them hope, as strange as that may sound, because it means that Nebuchadnezzar is not in control. Though he possesses power unlike any person before him ever had, he is still God's servant. So Daniel and his friends are not afraid because just as God said he would send his people into exile, he promises to see them through it and then to bring them home. Daniel remembers the words of Jeremiah 29 where God declared, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to bring you back. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Daniel knows that God is sovereign and that he is faithful to his people. He knows that God has not abandoned him to Babylon. There is a hint of this confidence in the very last verse of the chapter where we read that Daniel was in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. That isn't just a historical detail, a timestamp. Daniel isn't just giving us a bit of trivia here. He's nodding to the fact that God kept his promise. After 70 years of exile, the Persian empire led by Cyrus came calling, and they swept through Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's throne fell, and suddenly Daniel became the prisoner of a new king, and Cyrus sent him home with the artifacts from the temple that the Babylonians had carried off with instructions to rebuild it. It is what God said he would do. And it was trust in that promise that enabled Daniel and his friends to live into Babylon without abandoning their identity, without cowering in fear. And so they are free, even though they are captives. They accept deportation, new names, and life in a new culture because, that, because they know that their God has not abandoned them to it. They do not despair. Instead, they thrive They even serve in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, remembering that God had said to his people to seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile, and to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare is your welfare. So this book, the message of this book, is relevant for us, because like Daniel, we are exiles here, confronted almost daily with challenges to our faith and to our loyalty and faithfulness to Yahweh. Yet we do not run from the struggle. Instead, we lean into it, acknowledging that we are called to seek the welfare and the blessing of this place, to serve our neighbors and our communities, to pray for them, and to stand as living testimonies to the faithfulness of our God. In the midst of our own hardships and the temptations to put our trust in the things of this world, we look backward, and we remember that God himself took on flesh and left his home to be oppressed abused and and subjected to the will of a wicked king himself. Yet because God is sovereign, even the death of Jesus Christ was not his defeat, but redemption for all those who toil under the authority of earthly powers and look to him for hope and deliverance. Our God is one who reigns over all things, even the empires and institutions of our own day, whose influence and authority in our lives seem boundless. He makes the great powers of this world His servants and makes good things out of the dust and the troubles that we face. And because all of that is true, we can live in this fallen world, seeking the good of our communities, our neighborhoods, and our workplaces with genuine sincerity. Even far from home, longing for the day that he would go back and faced with the frightening possibility that he never would, Daniel was unshaken. And his compassion, even for his sinful captors, was sincere because his confidence was in the God who keeps his word. That is our hope in studying through this book together, that we would be people so firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are able to live with confidence and grace ourselves, even though we are a long way from our true home because we know that our God is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the book of Daniel and the ways you use it to bring encouragement and instruction and confidence in you and your faithfulness to us. We pray that as we begin our study of the book of Daniel this fall that you would be at work in us to give us wisdom for our own exile and assurance of your love for us. Our confidence is in you because of the spilled blood of your Son, by which you have redeemed our lives and secured our future forever. Give us faith to stand with courage and grace, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.